Sanctuary Church. There it is. Um, <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. So is this like a is this like a New England thing or like a Providence thing or something? I'm in Panera this morning, and like a an emergency alarm goes off, like strobes, like and then there's a voice that says, you, "There is an emergency. You should exit the building immediately." And not one single person got up. Like. <laughs> So I'm like, does everyone hear this? Am I the only one that hears this? And not one person is moving. They're not, they're not even like talking to each other about the alarm. And so I don't, I don't know what's going on. I don't know if this is like a New Englanders are just like, eh, whatever, you know. I'll wait till I see flames or, or, or what. I don't know what is going on. So I was confused. I started packing my things up, but I didn't want to look like I wasn't cool or something. So I just kind of slowly acted like I was already going to leave, you know. Even the employees, even the Panera employees were like, Meh, you know, whatever, I don't know. Should we leave? Maybe. Is that a thing? Is that your culture? What, what's going on here? You guys don't care about emergencies or what? Eventually, the, the Panera manager said, everyone has to leave. There's, a, there's, a, there's an alarm going off. Everyone get out. And they, they were still sort of like, meh, you know, maybe. Can I get my coffee first or no? Anyway, someone can explain that to me later. That'd be great. Um, what if? It's a good question. And maybe I'm supposed to help us this morning think about the church. Big concept of what is the church and what could it be? Was it supposed to be? What's it supposed to look like? What's it supposed to do? And the best way I know to do that this morning is to go to the end of the story. So I'm going to read from you, read for you an excerpt from Revelation 21, which is my favorite book of the Bible, by the way. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the very end, by the way, the very end of the last book. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. You know, to the ancient mind, the sea is chaos. You know, it's the unknown. It's, it's, it's a metaphor for fear, actually, the sea. No longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, look, behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. Can you imagine that? For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things, everything new. 
And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. And the, 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 the chapter ends with these words. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Guys, uh, you know, I don't know you personally that well, but we, we live in the same world. And this world is dark and dangerous and foreboding. There's plenty of reasons to be discouraged this morning. There's plenty of reasons to nurture a sense of futility to be pessimistic or cynical, to disengage, frankly, to bury our head in the sands of trivial trivialities and our own point of view, to isolate ourselves, to point the finger, to blame, to throw up our hands. There are plenty of reasons to doubt or dread to alienate or separate. And in this world, what does it mean then for us to be the church, to engage this self-same world? And as, I, as I'm praying for you, I just think that this is, this is what I want to say this morning, that, that um, to do that, I think we have to recapture some sort of collective dream for what we can be, to remember our future, which has been promised. It is written already. That seed, I think, that's planted in the heart of every person who's ever met Jesus, ever like locked eyes with him or heard his voice or looked into his eyes and saw something there. Something there for you, yes, for me, but something else. Something mischievous. Something about the future. Some plan that he has for all of us. Some surprise up his sleeve for all of us cynics and pessimists. It's like Jesus, even, even maybe, maybe it's hard to discern, but there's something when we see him, when we look upon him, when we, when we interact with him, when we experience in him with him, where there's something in him when he's saying, you'll see, you'll see, I'll make everything new. And so I want you to come with me this morning to the end a little bit and to see that this story, this whole story, the whole story of God, which begins with, well, with the creation of the world and through Israel and 
to a little place in Galilee all the way to the very end. It's a story of beauty. Unimaginable beauty. Breathtaking, heart stuff for. And he's looking for a metaphor to describe you, to describe his people, his church. I have lots of metaphors for the church, and none of them are good. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very, I, I have struggled throughout the whole of my faith walk to see the church as anything other than broken and twisted and self-serving. And yet I am, I am corrected, I am rebuked by God's own heart for his people. He, when he's looking for a metaphor for us, he has to choose this romantic one, this bridal paradigm to say it is his people are being made beautiful, ready for him. I mean, when he's looking for a way to describe how deeply he loves us in all of our brokenness, in our foolishness, in all the ways that we just have messed the whole thing up, frankly. He wants to call us his bride. Because he's done this, because he's choosing to use this metaphor of us, um, it means that we have to try to understand that we are his beloved, that that's primarily the way that he sees his church. It's primarily the way we're supposed to understand ourselves as something beautiful, actually, in the world. Not, not effective, you know? I just, think that's a, I just think that's the wrong road to go down. Not big, not, not excellent. I, I, I don't see that actually in Scripture at all to describe the church, that it's meant to be big or it's meant to be excellent. But I do see this, this, this image of beauty, which is better, actually. And so here, even in the end, we see this like, like presentation of the church, which is its city. It's, it's something beautiful, something dazzling, radiant. There's no more death in this thing, no more fear, no more crying. I mean, imagine that. There are three places in Scripture where, where, where this declaration is made. It is finished. It is done. It is over. The first one is the cross. It's when Jesus says, in, in, in the emptying of his own life, breath, and blood for you and for me, for, for the redemption of the whole world, he, he says, it is finished. That bit is finished. It's said again in Revelation, in the pouring out of the last bowl of judgment. In other words, when God has finally made everything wrong right, when there's justice that's been poured out for every wrong thing that's ever been done, Understand, it's not just that God is a God of love and therefore all he does is love people and he turns a blind eye to everything evil in the world. Those of us that long, we need a judge, we long for justice because we see just how evil people can be. And if there is no such thing as a judge, there is no such thing as love. If there is no such thing as justice, there is no such thing as a hope for anything beautiful in the world. So, so also judgment must come into the world. The problem is it just can't come through me or you. 
And so it, the second time that this is said in the Bible, it is finished, it is done as the last bowl of judgment is poured out. And the third time, the final, the crescendo of this statement, it is finished, is right here. The coming together, the culmination, the bride. The whole thing ends. Guys, the whole thing ends in a wedding. A union. Rooted somehow in this, this idea of romance. It's crazy. Imagine it. All, e even the book of Revelation. All of it. The whole thing. The heavens made new. The earth made new. It was all just for her. The whole thing, the cosmic war, the suffering of God, the story of Israel, the story of redemption, the shedding of his blood, the long-suffering war with evil itself, the blood, the fire, the dragons, the demons, the plagues, the pestilence, the empires, all of it, the beasts, the whole horrifying conflict was all about this union. So that he would remake the whole world to be as beautiful as we are. You know, when you have these uh, epiphanies, these theophanies in the Bible where people actually see God, it's very rare, but they actually come into the presence somehow of God. There's always this revelation. It happens in, in, in uh in the Old Testament and in the New, where they sort of see and they, they, they recognize that actually day and night around the throne in the presence of God, there are always angels attending him and they're always saying the same thing, holy, holy, holy. You know, it, it, you, I think it's possible to, to consider that or to read that and to think, oh, it's just, it's just some sort of like, I don't know, reinforcement God needs, like maybe he's insecure, he's not sure or something, and so uh, he just needs people telling him, you're awesome, all that, you know, like the, the self-help tapes, you just put it in, you're like, you are good, you are awesome, you are smart, you're going to be, you're going to do good today, whatever. It's not, I don't think, I'm, I'm just guessing, but I'm assuming God's not needing that necessarily, so what's going on with the, with the, the, the host of heaven, this throng sort of standing around him, and saying the same thing over and over and over again. It's possible, maybe, that it's about repetition, or just that it needs to be said constantly, or maybe, just maybe, what's happening there for the host of heaven is that they, they just keep seeing him in a different light. And from every vantage point, from every angle, they're just struck again and again and again. In fact, there is a connotation to that word which, which is rendered holy, which could also be rendered beauty, beautiful. And of course, if you think of it that way, it changes it a little bit. If, if I just keep saying it's beautiful, it's beautiful, it's like standing, I don't know, at the edge of the Grand Canyon or something. I mean, how many times, from how many vantage points could you stand there and just say again and again and again, this is beautiful, this is beautiful. It, it never stops being beautiful. Incalculably beautiful, infinitely beautiful. This is what it means to stand in the presence of God. And when God said, when Jesus said to his followers, you should be holy as your heavenly Father is holy, that actually what it is that the Spirit of God is at work doing in his church and in you, right now, in you, is to actually make you holy in the same way that your Father is holy, in the same way that heaven regards God as holy. He's making his church holy. And that means, at least at some level, it means beautiful, striking, dazzling, Breathtaking. 
And not in a one-soft assessment, like, yeah, I suppose you are sort of, you know, your friend looks good tonight, right? Yeah, you look good, you look good, that's it, that's all I'm going to say. No, like, it never stops getting old, you're just that beautiful. The church is not just supposed to be effective, it's supposed to be beautiful. This is part of what I know God is doing in you, I see it in you, just spending a little bit of time with your leaders and with some of you yesterday. It's, it's what he's doing, it's what he wants to do. And forget, guys, just listen, just forget about what the church has been. Forget about the mistakes you've seen it make. Even forget about where you are right now, or what you think is good or bad about Sanctuary Church, or your home church, or your home group, or wherever, however, however you gather as the people of God. This is what you're supposed to be. Beautiful. And so my prayer for you has been that you would become beautiful, holy. That's your destiny anyway. And so that you would try to live into that. So I started thinking for you, okay, um, how do you do it? How do you engage? That's the word this morning. How do we engage in that? And so I I just have three little tidbits for you this morning. Is that okay? Just three things I think you need to do. Maybe it's from God, maybe it's not. Uh, I'm just going to tell three stories, and I'm going to tell you three things I think you should do. and then you can, you can, you know, judge for yourself, size up whether or not you think those are meaningful for you personally or for you as a church. But how do we become beautiful? How do you in particular? Three things I'll say. One is stay out of the judgment business. Stay out of the judgment business. And I'll explain that. Two, traffic in mercy. Traffic in mercy. And three, be brave. Um... You know, yesterday, I, some, of you, some of you, I met you yesterday, many of you, and, and some of you, yesterday I told the story of my, um, uh, we were driving, this was maybe two weeks ago, we were driving, and uh, I pulled up to a light, and there was a, a homeless guy who was kind of flying a sign, and he was trying to uh, ask cars for money or whatever, and I see this, this other guy ride by on a bicycle super fast and then it appears like this guy starts chasing him but he was really old so he couldn't really catch him plus he was going I mean he was booking it so he just took off on a bike and it appeared to me just from the quick glance that this guy's bike had just been stolen by this other guy so this is how we are this is how the Sanders boys are I have six kids four of them are boys and so uh, we just we, we think every problem is our problem I'm not sure why we think we're just supposed to handle every problem in the world. And we like, we like to mix it up. We like to get in scrapes and that's just, we're up for it. Whatever it is, we're up for it. And in particular, my 17-year-old, he's the most, uh, I don't know how to say it, combative. He just likes to fight. He wants to fight everyone. He wants to fight me all the time. Um, in, a, in a good way, not in a bad way. I mean, sometimes in a bad way, but he's just, he's scrappy. He's scrappy. He's actually the smallest one, but he's the scrappiest one. You know what I'm talking about? That little Napoleon complex. That's what he has. And he's ready to go. He, he is day or night, 24 hours a day, ready to go. He's ready to rumble. 
And I know that about him. So he's like my little pit bull. And I just got in there. And so we pull up to this. I kind of circle back, pull up to this homeless guy. And I, I roll, roll down the window. I'm like, Luke, let me do the talking. Because I know he's ready to go. And I say, hey, man, did that guy just steal your bike? And he's like, yes, he took my bike. And so I don't know why. I, I really don't know why this occurs to me. But I, th- I just say to him, we're going to get your bike back. It's in our hands now. <laughs> we're, you know. Don't worry, we're on the case, you know. So, so I, I, what am I thinking, you know? So I take off, and, and it takes a while, but eventually you find this guy. And I pull up on him, and I jump out, and I'm like, you stole that guy's bike, and I'm all up in his face. And he starts saying to me, I didn't steal his bike, he stole my bike, I stole it back from him. <laughs> what do you do in that situation? Again, Luke's ready to go. He's like, he's like, Dad, just say the word. I'll take this guy down. He wrestles. So I'm sure he has some move planned to like put him in a pretzel or something. And, uh, and, and I'm just like, okay, hmm, interesting. Now I'm stuck. I'm sort of adjudicating the situation. Like, okay, huh. And he says, I mean, I'm not kidding. He said, he goes, you can ask my uncle. I'm like, am I going to really call his uncle? And... and then he said, you know, street justice. That's what he said. So we're all standing there. I'm standing there like, okay, now what do I do? This happened to me another time, uh, right, outside of, right outside of our house, because we live, you know, for, for 20 some years, we lived in, in, in the highest crime neighborhood in, our, in the city of Tampa. We chose to live there. We love it. That's our family. That's, we've raised all our kids there. Uh, and so, you know, things happen in the neighborhood. And one night, it's the middle of the night, I'm asleep. And there's some sort of scuffle happening right in front of our stoop. Like, you know, there's no yard. It's just, it's just, like, a, it's just like a porch and then a sidewalk, you know. And so you hear some scuffle. And I don't want to get up. There's always something going on. There's always some nonsense. And so I'm, it's, I'm sleeping. I, I, I want to be left alone. But my five-foot-nothing Puerto Rican wife, she's, like, get, she want, she's the same. She's like, gets, wants to get in it. So she goes, Brian, get up. I'm like, I'm not getting up. She's like, I'm doing it. So she goes outside. Uh, opens up the door, and uh, these three guys are just beating the life out of this little guy, this other guy. They're kicking him, they're punching him. He's down in like the fetal position on the ground. And so Monica doesn't care. So Monica runs in there and goes, you get out of here, get off him. And she's trying to fight them off. So I hear it. So I'm like, okay, I'll get up. Um, <laughs> so I get up. She's run them off. She's run these, these men, grown men off. And she's sort of caring for this guy that was getting uh, tore up. Turns out he, he doesn't even speak English, which is good because Monica can speak Spanish. So she's, she's sort of caring for him. He's bleeding. She's, taking, she's trying to take care of him. So then I'm, so I'm on the case. I put some pants on or whatever. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going after him. So I get in my car and I go after these guys. And what, by the way, maybe... You wouldn't do this sort of thing, so just try to help me understand myself. What am I doing? What exactly am I planning? What, what, is my, what is my plan when I get there? I have no plan. I just think someone ought to go after these guys. So I go after them. And I, I get them. I find them. And I'm standing there in a, in a, in a like convenience store, the sip-and-go kind of parking lot thing, and they're there, and I'm there. And I get out, and I, have my, I just had this bat by my door, so I grab it, and I had it. And I'm like standing there with it, and they're there, and I'm like, what's up? You know, what's up? And they're like, yeah, what's up? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just going to get in my car now. 
I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go home. Actually, I'm gonna call the police. So I call the police and they came and then they took off again. It's just, this is, this is my problem. And look, maybe it's not your problem. Maybe it's just, I'm just gonna use it as an illustration this morning. This is our problem collectively as a church. We, we just aren't good at the, just, the judgment business. It's, it's not, it's not, it's just not something human beings are any good at. It never has been actually. We try. We, we try to set up our systems, but they're so twisted and broken. The best human judicial systems still are horrific. We're just not good at judgment. And it's not something I actually think the church should be doing much of. I think of myself as like the bad Samaritan. You know the story of the good Samaritan? I think maybe I'm the bad Samaritan. So I'm the guy. Do you remember the story Jesus tells that there was a man who coming down from Jericho and he was set upon by thieves and then he was beaten up and he was within an inch of his life laying in the ditch beside the road and a priest walks by and sees the man and says, ah, I'm not going to do anything. He keeps going. A Levite walks by and says, sees the man, ah, I'm not going to do anything. He keeps going. And then a Samaritan comes by. Do you remember the story? And he stops. He bandages up the man's wounds. He puts him on his own donkey. He takes him in. I feel like if I'm in that story, I'm not the priest of the Levite. I'm, I'm Christian, you know. Uh, uh, but what I do is I lean down, dude, I'm so sorry, who hurt you? I'll go after them. <laughs> Stay here, you know. I'm on it. That's not what he needs, do you understand? He doesn't need me to go, especially when there is a God of justice who will sort the world. He doesn't need me to go. He needs, he's actually, hey man, I actually need some triage here. I, I could use some medical attention is actually what I need. Not you going off and doing some sort of vigilante street justice for me. But that, I'm sure that's what I would do. I'm sure of it. I don't think I would pass him by and I don't think I would do the right thing either. I think I'd do this sort of middle thing. And maybe, maybe we live in a world, we, we do live in a world right now where it is very in vogue to, be, to judge people. It is very in vogue to decide who's in or who's out of your group. It's very in vogue to say who's right or who's wrong and to really come hard after people you think are wrong. Christians are doing it now with impunity as if they think that somehow that represents the Jesus whom they have pledged their life to. And I don't know, I don't know, maybe it's social media or maybe it's some sort of news, sort of medium that exists in the world where we can do that with an anonymity. Because where I come from, you say, some of the stuff gets said on the internet. It's like, well, you just, I mean, I actually think, I want to write on the internet many times, say that to my face. I just want to be like, come, here's my address. Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Troll, just come on over. But the truth is we wouldn't. The truth is we wouldn't. We wouldn't say it, something like that to someone's face. We have a higher emotional intelligence, we know. It's just not something we should do that much of. Leave the judgment to God. That's Romans 10 anyway, isn't it? Or Romans 12. You know, do not judge. Don't, don't repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Because this promise has been made. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll, don't worry, I, vengeance will find its time and place. It just can't be you. It's not, it's not what we're supposed to do in the world, this judgment thing. And so that my second idea is maybe related, that what we ought to do is traffic in mercy. Now what we are good at, what we should deliver is mercy. Even that story, that, that, that 
kind of Good Samaritan story. It's a, it's a really a beautiful story. I, I think sometimes we misunderstand it, though. I think, I think that the takeaway from the story is like you're supposed to be the Samaritan, but I don't think that's true. I actually think that there's, a, there's another character in the story, which is you and me. It's the, it's the innkeeper. It's just a weird story. I mean, in all other ways, kind of rabbinic stories that got their threes, and it's, the, the story is good. The story is settled with just, the, ink, with just the, the good Samaritan taking in the man, binding him up, putting him in his donkey. End of story. It, it answers the question which was originally posed to Jesus. What does it mean? You know, who, who, who is my neighbor? You know, what does it mean to be a good neighbor, to love your neighbor? But Jesus adds this other part of the story. He says, actually, the man, the Samaritan, bound up the man, put him on his own donkey, and then took him to an innkeeper. This is a strange first century character. Because it wouldn't be like going off to the, to the, to the Hyatt or something. And even that isn't going to really work. You know, you, you wheel in somebody who's like clinging to life and bleeding. And like, hey, uh, you know, it's cool if I leave this guy here. Is that cool? Will you take care of him? I mean, it's a big deal to ask the innkeeper to take on this, this, this half-dying man. And that's exactly what happens. The Samaritan ha- has some sort of relationship with this innkeeper where he could go to him. And in the first century world, there, the innkeepers weren't trying to like pr- provide hospitality. I mean, we're talking about like a place to, the place to tie up your donkey and some straw and a little bit of like dirty water. That's all you're getting for the night. You're not getting anything else. There's no concierge service in first century Palestine innkeeping. Do you understand? And so, so for him to say, it's just a lot to ask the innkeeper to say, Could, here, I want to leave this one with you. But the innkeeper is just as remarkable a person in the story because the innkeeper agrees. And then this promise is made. If you remember the story, it's, it's actually, it actually takes my breath away. This promise is made where the Samaritan says to the innkeeper, and, and I will return, and whatever it costs you, I will cover it. I will pay. You see, I think, I think the good Samaritan in the story is Jesus. Not you, not me. I don't save people from death. I can't do that. And I don't even know where the good Samaritan went. Like, why, why do you got to drop him off at the innkeeper? Maybe, maybe he was going off to do some vigilante. Maybe he was looking for him. Maybe he, like, took care of him, and then he took him to somebody else, and he's like... I want you to take care of this man, make sure he's okay, and whatever it costs you, I will return and I will cover it. See, I think we're the innkeeper. The church is meant to be the innkeeper in the story. We're supposed to take the people that Jesus brings from the brink of death into our homes, into our lives. And you know what? I've spent a good 25 years doing that of my life, and I'll tell you right now, it costs you more than you have. It will deplete your whole life if you do that. If you take in the people that that Jesus brings to your life, to your door, the people that the church, the people that religious people have ignored, but actually Jesus is taking in. If you take them, it will cost you more than you have, but he has made a promise to us that whatever it costs you, he'll cover it. He'll repay it. One day I was coming home from... from, uh, from work, I was actually already on my way home, and uh, I get a call from Monica, and she says, "Brian, you need to come home right now." 
I said, okay, I'm on my way. What's the problem? She said, there's a man in our house and he won't leave. And I said, okay, well, it's not that unusual, actually. So I said, um, <laughs> I should probably give you just as, a, just as context. So, um, you know, for, for a good 20 years, every single week in my home, at least once a week, our table's open to anyone. And the, my dining room, living room, my sort of home has been open for 20 years to people. And I can tell you, for those of you that do home groups or home churches, um, or you're just starting or whatever, I can tell you that I, I have seen the church in its truest form there than I have seen it anywhere in the world. And I have seen around my ordinary dinner table, I have seen miracles. And people have been healed. And people have found faith. And there has been laughter and tears and conflict and pain and death. People have died and addiction and, and divorce and reunification and Everything that you can imagine has happened in my home. And so it's, it's just how it is, you know. And, and because we live in a poor part of town, there are always people knocking on the door saying stuff. And what we say to them is like, I mean, this is me again, so don't, don't copy me. Just, I just say, does this look like a soup kitchen to you? Uh, this, is a, this is a home, you know. What do I look like? You want, uh, can I get $2? Can I get $2? I need $2. Could I get $2? But what we always say to anyone who comes to our house is, our home is always open. Come back for dinner. This is a family. We, we live, and of course I live with other people too, so it's, it's more than just my family. And so we're always like, look, you, you, of course you're welcome here, but this is, this is a home, this is a family. If you want to come here, you've got you to gotta join a family. This is not, it's not, it's not a charity. I'm, I'm as broke as you are. Maybe not quite as broke as you are, but I'm just broke too. So but there's always food on this table, and you as a human being are always welcome. And so our house is, people come and go. That's all I'm saying. People come and go through the years. And so Monica says, okay, this, there's a guy in our house, and he won't leave. I said, well, so my response was, well, who invited him? Who brought him in? And she says, this, this is what makes this interesting. She says, no one invited him. And I was like, come on, who else is there? She said, well, Jennifer's here, whatever. I said, okay, well, did Jennifer, is somebody that Jennifer knows? She's like, Brian, nobody knows this guy. He's in the house and he won't leave. And no one invited him in. And I was like, okay, this is a problem. So I, I kind of step on it and I head home. And I'm amped up now, you understand. I, you're starting to get a sense of me, I think, <laughs> a little bit. So I'm a little, I'm a little amped up, you know. I come in. And this guy is sitting there in the dining room. And Monica, my wife, and Jennifer, one of the people who lived with us at the time, are talking to him. And they seem to be sort of pleading. And I come in, and I just say, hey, man, I, the second I walk in, I said, hey, man, I don't know what's going on here. It's cool. I, 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 love, I want to talk to you. Let's talk. But I'd like to talk to you outside. So just step outside. The first thing that's going to happen is you're, we're going to step outside. And he says to me, I'm not leaving. This is my house. He said, this is my house. 
I was like, I'm pretty sure it's not your house, man. I'm pretty sure it's my house. He's like, it's my house. It's not your house. It's my house. So we have a problem. We have a problem. And then he just starts going on. He's, I mean, he's kind of going on. He actually, he says that, that Monica, my wife, is his sister. He says that that's my sister. I'm like, it's not your sister, man. And I'm like, you seriously need to leave. I'm going to need you to step outside. Because he's getting animated. He's getting upset, you know. I think I told you I keep a bat by my door. So I reach over and I grab this bat. And I'm like, listen, you're going you're gonna to leave the house one way or the other either under your own power or under mine, you're going to leave the house. And I'm not kidding. I'm not joking. This is what he says to me. He said to me, he points at the bat and he goes, that's my bat. <laughs> that's my bat. Now he's getting amped up, so he's sort of, he starts cussing me out and he's, he's mad. So I, I kind of take him by the collar and take him outside. Uh, and then he's still mad at me because... I'm throwing him out of his house. Do you understand? No? Yeah, it's hard to understand. But in his mind, I'm throwing him out of his house, you know? It's starting to dawn on me that he think, he believes this. So I see, like, right down the street, there's a checkers, and there's some police in, in the, the parking lot of the checkers. So I see them. He sees them. And as soon as he sees the police, this is what he does. He, he's like, makes a beeline for them. He's like, I'm going to go get my house back. So he goes to the police. He takes off to the police to talk to the police about this thing, that, this horrible thing that's happening to him right now, being thrown out of his own house with his sister inside. So, uh, so he goes, and I just, I'm just sitting there like, what, this, what world do I live in? What is, what is happening but I really want to hear this conversation. I just don't want to miss it. I don't want to hear. I want to be there when I hear this guy talk to the police. So, so he go. You know, it's maybe it's maybe a hundred yards there. He kind of takes off. He's there. I see him now talking to him. So I, I got to go over there. I just I'm too curious. So I get in my I hop in my car and I pull up. And just as I pull up on these two cop cars and they're talking to him, and I get out, he points at me, and he goes, and then he says, "That's my car." That's my car. Now, the police don't always handle these things perfectly, uh, but, but I, actually, I actually have a lot of respect for how this was handled this day because the police were like, we need to see some ID from me. They're like, did you steal this dude's car? You know? And I, I don't know, I, I kind of appreciate that. You know, like, good, good on you guys. Yeah, I need to prove this is my car. And, and they, they begin to sort of get the sense of it that maybe something isn't quite right in this guy's head. And so they ask him to empty his pockets, and then he starts kind of losing it, freaking out a little bit. And so they turn him, they put his hands behind his back, and then guys, all of a sudden, this, this, this threat that I perceive, he just tra is transfigured in my eyes. And I see this just young man. And he begins to like wail. I mean like heaving, chest heaving, crying. And snot is just pouring out of his nose as his hands are bound behind his back. And I suddenly see just someone caught in the, the tentacles of addiction and mental health challenges. And guys, I, 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 the wind came out of me. And I actually took a knee. I just couldn't stand. 
because I realized just for one split second, I realized just my own depravity. What is wrong with me? What, is, what exactly is so wrong with me that I can't see this, this, this lost soul, this, this human being, that I have to perceive a threat rather than, 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 than someone for whom Jesus died, who needs, who came into our church, our home. Why do I only see threat or what is wrong in people? When God does not look on me that way, He doesn't look on us that way. God's not blind to our sin or our rebellion, but still, while we were enemies with God, He died for us. He loves us. We're just better off trafficking in mercy. We're better at it. We're better versions of ourselves when we do it. It's who we were meant to be. And when we do that, when there are plenty of stories I could tell you where we were, we were more heroic, where I didn't look like a complete idiot. And, and I'm sort of regretting right now in this moment, I'm not telling more positive stories about myself. I feel, <laughs> I feel like that may have been a mistake. But nevertheless, there, there are some good ones too, you know, lots of good ones. That's something maybe more beautiful. It's something to do, I think, it's something to do with fear, guys. Something to do with fear. Certainly in that moment, it was to do with fear. And fear kills beauty. Fear kills the church. And the only thing I know of, the only thing that I can see in Scripture that overcomes fear or that trumps fear or that beats fear or actually in the words of the Apostle John that drives out fear, that casts out fear like the demon that it is, is love. Perfected love. That's a prayer for you. That's a prayer for your church. That love would be perfected in you. That's, that's a worthy prayer for every day of your life. God, perfect love in me. Because perfect love drives out fear. And the one who fears is not perfected by love. This is what John, it says in 1 John 4. That, that maybe is my last word to you, is something about bravery. Just be brave. Be brave. You know, the church, I think, is supposed to have a little bit of... Um, I don't know, foolhardiness to it um, in whatever form it takes, however it, it expresses itself in the world. You know, Sir, I, one of the founders of Google, Sergey Brin, says to his people that he wants them to have a healthy disregard for the impossible. I like that. Do you like that? A healthy disregard for the impossible. You're supposed to have a healthy disregard for the impossible. The great science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke said that Politics is, um, is the art of the possible, and therefore it is for second-rate minds. I love that. <laughs> Politics is the art of the possible, therefore it is for second-rate minds. First-rate minds care about the impossible. 
course, that takes overcoming our fear. It means taking a risk. Guys, when was the last time you took a serious risk because of your faith? And I, I mean for you right now to, to, to hear me. You. Not the person next to you. You. When was the last time you took a serious risk because you, 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 you sensed Jesus wanted you to do it, or for love? Most of us just, we're just mired in fear. And we can't really deliver the goods of grace or mercy because we're afraid. I love that question. What would you do if you were not afraid? What would you do in your life if you were not afraid? Like at all. What would you do? I have a friend, a guy I met who lives, who's Indian, lives in India. Smart guy. Worked for Microsoft for some time before he got into ministry and um, really handsome, you know, kind of charismatic guy. Um, still, still on the young end, youngish, you know, 30s, late 30s, something like that. And um, just really impressive dude. And one day he was stuck, he was where he lives um, in southern India. He was, he was kind of in a situation where he saw uh, this, this, this kind of, you know, what looked like a, maybe a street orphan or child or something. Uh, and he went over and tried to interact with the child. And this, uh, this, this man came over and said, you know, you, you can't talk to him, but if, you, but if you want him, you know, there's money that has to change hands. Like, literally, the little boy was for sale. And because he was a Christian and because he was in ministry, he's kind of a church leader, church planner type guy now. That's a lot of what he's doing. He didn't know why, but he just felt like he was like, okay, well, f- how much? And he just wanted to get this kid away from this horrific situation. And so I think some sort of money changed hands, and he took the kid, and he didn't know what he was doing, but he just thought the right thing to do is just save this kid, rescue this kid. And he paid a little money, and he took this little boy in, and now he's like kind of stuck with his orphan trying to figure out, now what do I do? But what, what, what's, what makes his story remarkable is that actually that, that man who was, who was kind of a part of this underworld of, of buying and selling children, um, usually for sexual gratification, um, came back to him, found him and came back to him and said, are you interested in more kids? And what would you do in that situation? So he, he's, he's now realizing, oh, I see, you think I'm somebody that buys children. You sell children. So he's come back, and all of a sudden he finds himself in this kind of seedy underworld of trafficking children. And so, what would you do? I mean, ethically, it's probably not good to contribute to the system, right? But yet, in the moment, you think, I I have some money, I could buy some more kids. I could save some kids, just money. That's all it takes is money. And so he said, right or wrong, judge, you can, you can, well, I just told you not to judge, so don't. Like, at least for this sermon's length, do not judge this guy, you know. Um, he decided, he said, yes, I'm, I'm very interested. I'll buy, I'll buy. How many do you have? How many do you have? He said, well, right now, we have 50 children, 50 children. 
that are going to be sold into sexual slavery. Do you understand that? Girls and boys. He said, well, how much? And so it, it, it equated to 100 U.S. per child. Think about that. $100 buys the life, the innocence of a child, a human being. And he said, he didn't know why, but he just said, yeah, I'll take them all. He didn't have the money, so he reached out to a really good friend of mine. And my friend's reaction to this was like, excuse me, let me get this straight. No, he was like, let me get this straight. I give you $100 and you save one child from a life of sexual torture and slavery. Is that what you're saying? And he said, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And he's like, yeah, I'll give you that. And, he's, and he actually, my friend was like, not only that, if I give you more, Will you buy more? And now all of a sudden, this guy feels like, what, am I, what have I gotten myself into? But his reaction is, yeah, I think so. So the first group of kids that they buy, <clears throat> of course, now they've got to figure out something, so they start these orphanages, and they start figuring out it's going to cost a little more because we have to put up an orphanage. And so they start building these orphanages. They start, they, they, he becomes this known underworld uh, uh, trafficker because he's buying kids out of the market to, to save them, put them in orphanages. They're still doing it. They're still doing it. I think they've saved something like a thousand kids or something crazy. Again, I don't know if you're going to judge me for it, but I've also put some money in the pot. I, I, I couldn't resist. You know, I'm like... I can save some kids' lives, I'm in. You know, yeah, maybe it's illegal. You know, I'll face God one day, I suppose, but we did it. We're doing it. Still doing it. This guy is, has been, because he's, because he's involved himself in this, he's been beaten, he's been jailed, his life is under constant state of threat, but he doesn't, he doesn't stop what he's doing. This is, this is what perfect love looks like, guys. No fear. And you know, you know that you're coming up short in, 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 the, in the, the thing which was most meant to define and describe the beauty of the church, which is love, if, you, if you're suffering under great fear. How afraid are you? How anxious are you? And that is a measurement, in one sense, of the ugliness of our lives. We, we need to get rid of that so that we can be beautiful to the world, so that we can traffic in love. And it means, it does mean stop being afraid. Guys, be brave. Take a risk. Take a chance. Put your neck out there. But you have to do it because you find someone or something worth loving. Look, I have six kids. I said that. And one of my kids, all of my kids are, are, are healthy and great and walk with the Lord except for one. Except for one. And she's as lost as a person can be. And in a very real sense, she is just like that first little boy that, that my friend saw sitting there on the road that day. And, and I'm telling you, I understand now in a way I never could understand before the, the story of the prodigal son where the father is waiting. And what it feels like to wait. 
and to wring your hands and to wonder and to worry and to know that your child is off in a foreign, faraway land squandering their inheritance. And I realize now, I realize now what, what uh, a sort of hidden dimension of that story, that, that a part of what the father is doing and feeling, I know, I know now, I couldn't see it before, but I know now that the father is praying for someone to go and to enter into, to find my daughter and bring her home. And all over the city, I, I've walked around the city a little bit, and all over the city on the south side where we, where we were the other day and just walking around there, I'm telling you, all over the city there are people that are sitting there that somewhere a mother or a father or an uncle or someone who cares or just their heavenly father is praying, God, send someone. Send someone. And you need to hear me this morning because God has already chosen for you to go to those people. There are people in this city that are waiting for you, for you, for you, not for someone else, not for Sanctuary Church, for you to go to them. I don't know who they are. I can't possibly know that. You may not even know yet who they are, but I'll tell you this, as the Father who's waiting, please be obedient. Please be brave. Please overcome your own fears to step outside of the doors of your own home. This morning, we're going to take communion. I, I'm, I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads for a moment. I read to you from Revelation 21, the last chapter of Revelation, Revelation 22. It, it ends with this, this, this word, the Spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come guys the church is yearning for its wayward sons and daughters to come home the, the spirit is yearning for its wayward sons and daughters to come home and I'm asking you this morning to come into agreement with the spirit and the bride and to say also come home to allow your life to be a life that says to those who are in need of a meal or, or, or a room or, or, or just a family or a place or someone to listen to them, that you would be those people. And if you will, if you will, then you will be beautiful. You are beautiful. There may still be some ugliness yet in us, but he is working, ever working, to make us radiant. This morning, just as your head is bowed, I'm going to ask you to really just let the Spirit of God say something to you. Some personalization of this, maybe it is a risk you're supposed to take. Maybe, maybe he wants to actually show you that right now. And I'm going to ask that as you come to the table this morning, as you come to take communion, that there will be some sort of commitment that you make in this exchange. A commitment to set aside your fear. A commitment to love someone. A commitment to take a step you knew, you already knew before you walked in here you were supposed to take. Maybe it's to lay down a judgmental heart. Maybe it's to offer something to someone that you know you're supposed to. But guys, everyone, everyone in this room, I'm asking you to think, what is it, Lord, that you want me to do? 
to respond so that we would be together beautiful to the world. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take it and eat it to remember me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sin. Drink it to remember me. And somehow, miraculously, mysteriously, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I invite you all, after an examination of your own heart, and if you are in covenant relationship with God, I invite you to this table. The simple instructions are to just come down the center aisle if you're new. I think the way we do it here is you just come down the center and you can exit on the sides. You take a little bit of the bread and just dip it in the juice. And if you need prayer, I think there may even be people over here feel that you need prayer for something this morning, uh, come forward. So when you're ready, when your hearts are ready, this is the body and blood of Jesus given for you.